Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to No Royal Road, uh, a co-production of Regrettable Century and Varn Blog. And today we're all here, um, me, Varn, and... Chris, I'm here. <laughs> I also am here as Jason. Yeah, I, I decided not to call you the Regrettable Brothers because I realize that sounds pretty bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'd like to leave that up to the audience's judgment. <laughs> like... Well, I mean, what's regrettable about it? Your brotherhood, you as a unit, <laughs> Just our ex- our existence <laughs> as individuals, but definitely as like the collective unit. So, in no royal row, we're going to talk about uh, feudal revolutions, and we're going to be riffing off of a debate over if there was feudal revolutions, uh, focusing mostly on Chris Wickham's. Um, Thesis, but also I think this is going to give us a chance to go into people like uh, Jairus Banerjee and um, maybe Samir Amin and some other people who have different answers to this question as a bridge to f- the future in this series, where we talk about some other of the attempted Marxist answers. Unfortunately, I think we we started with the one we agreed with most first. Yeah. Um. So. So, so just guys, so you know, a lot of uh, a lot of this, uh, we may be more biased in our presentation. Although I am very copacetic to the Brenner Woods thesis, even though I don't think it answers everything. And I actually think uh, Banerjee makes a lot of great points, but his recent book confirmed what I was afraid of: that if you really took his uh, his framework to heart, you end up saying capitalism has been part of every mercantile society at all going all the way back to the Roman empire. So news that is met with much rejoicing by, right. by neocons everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And libertarians and, and liberals. Right. Yeah. And because I, I was worried about, I mean, I know what he was arguing against. He's arguing against actually the position that Wickham was arguing against here, which is a position that there is a clear stage set of revolutions that all mirror capitalism so how capitalism came into being can be seen as mirroring each prior set now uh i'm preparing for an interview with um with uh, dr rebecca carl who has a who you know talks about revolutions um as a continuous process in history and she basically sees the driver of history as revolutionary change um but she also rejects uh, the idea that, like, she was talking about how, like, the Nationalist Revolution in, um, in China can't be said to be a truly bourgeois revolution because it didn't really have capitalist content. So that's kind of a nonsense and starting point. It's just imposed to make a framework work. 
from, uh, you know, very doctrinaire uh, dialectical and historical materialism uh, via, you know, Stalin's condensation of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm also guessing that's what this debate really comes from, because if you believe in the model of history is class struggle, but class struggle is manifested in clear modes of production um, that have that always have a revolutionary changing point, which I don't know that I actually believe. I think that that may be true for capitalism and it will be true for socialism, but I don't know that it's true for earlier societies. It's it's even I think like there's enough there's enough room for a, a robust debate about whether it's true for capitalism as well. Like you could you could argue that capitalism was in place. Yeah, right. I mean, I think what's really at stake is just how cleanly you have to uh, conceptualize all of these things. So, like, if you right. if you if you can only conceive of the bourgeois revolution as or a revolution, right, as uh, like a conscious arrival onto the scene of like a new class that wants to shape the world in its own image consciously, then you're not going to find one of those anywhere until the proletarian revolution. At least that's the hope, right? Right. As, um, I say, like I, as of right now, you have not found one of those anywhere. Right. Yeah, I have heard been, this, I've heard it levied that the French Revolution wasn't really the bourgeois revolution because, you know, there aren't industrialists trying to bring about the rule of capital. Um, and I feel like that's just not a... Sure. If that's all it means, then yeah, that hasn't happened anywhere well it did happen in china right <laughs> yeah i mean in, in 1978 and it happened in russia in 1992 yeah but those, those, those are the bourgeois revolutions right that like uh i mean and it takes a communist society to have a bourgeois revolution apparently well i mean that's that, that's sort of trotsky's point right <laughs> yeah in that's, a way <laughs> that's that's permanent revolution but like in its most vulgar form i think that like um the, the problem with the 20th century actually existing socialism. And this is not going to be a surprise to anyone that to hear uh, someone to the left of Lenin say this is that there were developmental regimes, right? Yeah. And uh, they were supposed to link up with the regimes in the West that weren't developmental and uh, have like for the full flourishing of uh, potential. But yeah, I, well, I, I think, I think the, the exception to that probably actually is China. Um, yeah. And I'm going to go off on a limb and say that Maoism is one of these things that is full of contradictions, including like somebody who on one hand is really trying to implement workers' democracies and re-implement peasants and workers' Soviets actually in the 70s. At the yeah. same time, uh, making, you know, four ways into, into the West and setting up some of the systems of, of uh, control that Dung was able to seize on and have a bourgeois revolution that actually suppressed bourgeois whites. I mean, one of the funniest things that I think is hilarious is uh, um, whatever you want to say about the cultural revolution, if there was de facto freedom of speech, there was de jure freedom of speech until 1979. Like it's, it, it's one of the ironies It's like, you know, people, people talk about a uh, Maoist period as if it was under the same kind of regime as China in the eighties. And that's just not true. I mean, and the reason why I bring that up, is I think you have to look at how uneven these revolutionary movements are. Uh, I just talked to Deng Ping Han, who said that 1989 was almost a revolutionary movement against against the communist government for communism and also for for bourgeois rights at the same right. time. Like he was pointing out that the, yeah, a lot of the student leadership was actually you know reactionary and had ties to the West. But the reason why they had popular support was that 
the government had liberalized everything and they were about to have a peasants' revolt, more or less. I mean, something um, yeah. similar happens in Hungary, right? I was yeah. going to say that's kind yeah. of the way that that um, that's the rational kernel of the kind of third camp, Tony Cliff, whatever critique of that whole period or that assessment of that whole period is that that is the the nature of the Solidarność movement, despite its ultimate conclusion with the uh, overthrow of, you know, the return of capitalism to Poland and so on. And I think that at least is a, an intellectual space that should stay open in terms of how we understand um, the dynamics of social transformation, no matter what era we're looking at, right? That's, you know, the, I, the, the notion that the bourgeois revolution is progress um, is too teleological. Um, the idea that a feudal revolution requires um, an aristocratic class to be playing some sort of historically progressive heroic role is uh, a bridge too far for a lot of people. But I think if you just look at the ways in which a moment can be, can embody two different, you know, contradictory tendencies, and that even both can win out. It's not just like, oh, this gets resolved when one wins out. This is that they both can win out. And that's not actually, that should, it really shouldn't trouble us too much. The, the return of bourgeois right under the ages of socialism is, uh, I think, something we should be comfortable with. I, I think, though, it does lead to the irony that's very hard to explain to the common person that, hey, the socialist revolution seemed to have spiked capitalism over more of the earth than the capitalists even were able to pull off. Yeah. I mean, at least in physical landmass, if not in people. Well, that's why we shouldn't be unapologetic defenders of things just because they look cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's also oh, why, dude, like. ML's wrecked. <laughs> but it's also why, I mean, to, to turn it into a serious point just for a second, though. It's also why you can't easily, like, someone asked me if I'm a Soviet defensist or not. And the answer is, even I don't know. Because I do think the class of the Soviet Union um, is a world historic tragedy. But I also think that I, unlike a lot of other people, kind of think the Soviet Union is why the Soviet Union collapsed. Yes, there's Western opposition backing the corner, but... No one in any socialist sphere ever should have not expected that. Mm -hmm. right. right. That's the one thing that you could factor in. And then everything else is a matter of figuring out what to do about it. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean we, we've referenced Tickton's analysis of the Soviet economy, like, uh, times in our conversations. And that was just that it was non-functional <laughs> and it was a non-economy, a non-mode of production. Sorry. What, what, so to get back to this period, though, what I what I'm what I'm fascinated with in in Wickham and the way he describes the early or the late antique, early medieval economies uh, versus like these clear stagist theory is also you kind of the Carolingian Empire is also kind of a non-motor production. Yeah, uh, the Carolingian Empire is sort of like uh, trying to stack a superstructure on top of a base that is not able to support it. Right, and it and it goes away uh, as quickly as it sprung up. But what it did, because because what it was, according to Wickham here, it seems like not according to Wickham here, according to Wickham in the last article that we read, right. it was the carryover of Roman ideology. Right. Mm -hmm. So the Carolingian state was based on Roman ideology, placed on top of a, a uh, like a base that couldn't support it. But what when once that collapse collapses, the echo of Roman ideology is still there. And then it is later imitated. So it's like triple distilled Roman ideology by the time it comes to fruition. I mean, but this leads us to like an observation that Marx makes in the Brumaire about how like, like, you know, the whole Marx is 
to put it in modern terms, to revolution is always to LARP in the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, A theme but, that we keep returning to, apparently. Right. right. Yeah. But I think this is actually an interesting point because it says the ideological structure of the Roman Empire is so vital to the European understanding of itself and the way that, say, the caliphate notion of, of the caliphate empires are so vital to the right. Islamicate world's understanding of themselves mm-hmm. that you can't get rid of it, even though it's been dead for a... Well, I mean, in the Byzantium case, okay, maybe 200 years, but it's been dead for for a thousand years in some places. And yet it's totally... The contradictions of that ideological form when it's modes of production, whatever they were, we've talked a lot about how they changed, um, are gone, still resonate to the point that the French Republicans are appealing to it, the the Prussian unification and early nationalisms, and fascism all make explicit appeal to it. you, You can't get out of it. And right. I, mean, it, I mean, not ju- we don't just end at the fascists. Still, even today, libertarians uh, harken back to the Roman Republic as like their model. Um, which right. is if they're not talking about feudalism as like privatized everything, which yeah, which is funny because I I actually I laugh at it because I'm like it's wrongheaded, but in some ways it's more right than the way some Marxists talk about it, as if it's like <laughs> like these. Like there's a tendency to look at these kingdoms as as little nation states, and that's just right. wrong. Like that's yeah. not what they were. I mean, there's a desire to look at them that way. Yeah, right. And it's interesting because in this way, leftists actually mirror liberals. Who who liberals are always liberal nationalists of re- and reactionary nationalists are always tra- having to construct a myth of a coherent um, ethnoi that you can tie to a state, and they always have to do that through national mythologies, particularly after the end of Christianity as the dominant organizing force in Europe. Um, But it's almost always bullshit. Like, like, I mean, even when it comes to like modern Greece's relation to, to ancient Greece, it's not clear, for example, that the genetic heritage of modern Greeks uh, is totally the same. And that maybe a lot of Turks who view themselves as descendants of Asian steppe peoples are actually more genetically related to uh, Mycenaean Greeks than, than modern Greeks are. Oh yeah. I've got some Turkish friends that, uh, Mm-hmm. They're not step people. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Distinctly European looking folks. Right. And, and I mean, there's a whole lot of Slavic immigration into. Right. And I say this because if you, if your ideas of all these ideas of blood nation and blood race are bullshit, right? Yeah. But where do they come from? And they come from this period that I think what Marxists are direly afraid of, though, is if you get rid of the concept of bourgeois revolutions, and you start you start seeing holes develop in the modes of production as clear, discrete, continuous, coherent, consistent thing. It makes historical materialism look like it'll fall apart. It now, shouldn't, though. I, no, I, I actually, but I have said, look, there are literally two places where Marx and Engels mentioned the schema that we use for historical materialism. You know. Um, Primitive communism, Asiatic despotism, feudalism, liberalism, and then they add socialism, right? Um, they are picking that up from Smith and Ricardo, actually. 
Like there's even like even Asiatic despotism marks like makes some kind of ironic note when he mentions it. And they mention it twice. Only twice in the entire corpus of Marx and Engels does that come up stated clearly. Now, why do I point that out? Well, even Trotskyists, God bless them, have been obsessed with typologies of modes of production and revolution. Like, yeah. obsessed with it. Like, we gotta find the bourgeois revolution, then we gotta find uh, the uh, the socialist revolution, we gotta have them discrete points. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean that's how we were trained to be. Like, absolutely. Like, uh, the two of us. Um, you know, so what's I mean, the first bourgeois revolution, England or France? England. The English Civil War is the first bourgeois revolution, right? Right. And it's yeah. unfinished, literally. Yeah. Then, like it, the the re- the restoration and and reformation of the monarchy literally means there's no land reform in England. That they still have fe- they still technically have feudal tax holdings. I mean, like yeah. Um, I mean, even like World War II pretty much ended like seniorial tenure, essentially having serfs work on your land, but they're not necessarily serfs because they're free to leave. But like uh, entire towns that are governed by a lord. And who are paying uh, rents to their lord? You know that that doesn't end until after World War II. So we have a double problem here. If we go back and look at the the beginnings of the feudal quote revolutions and why Wickham, I don't, you know, actually the people who believe in a feudal revolution, even amongst Marxists, are a minority. I believe now, right? And and I think that like the the article that we read uh, for for this discussion, Wickham is. Just he doesn't give it. He basically just says this is not something that like most people are even talking about anymore. And he's responding to a specific work that came out, the Bisson work, right? Right. Yeah. We should we should probably acknowledge, or we should clarify, um, when we say most Marxists don't necessarily mean most people who consider themselves to be Marxists and what they think about history. We, what we mean is like Marxist scholars of history who are trying to right. formulate a theory of historical development. Because I think that the average person on the left calls himself a Marxist because that just means I don't like capitalism. Right, right. And that person, they, and that person thinks of everything is a revolution. Um, specifically here, though, like what Wickham is doing, though, is saying like he's arguing against this position it has been termed the feudal revolution slash mutation. So it sort of like widens it from being like happening within a century long period to being a little bit longer, whereas Wickham argues that feudalism is a process that starts at the end of the Roman Empire that, and then carries all the way into modernity. Yeah, I mean, it, what's interesting is I, I about a year ago, it's being released now, but about a year ago I recorded Immortal Science where I went through History of Separation by the End Notes Collective, which goes through this. They pick up on anarchist scholarship, but also an analytical Marxist scholarship and just demography. But they make a very astute point that the proletarian revolutions of the 20th century were all developmentalist regimes. And what they actually did in every single case was to get rid of the peasantry. So why don't we call them from the standpoint of what revolutions do, right, which is either empower one class over another or, or eliminate a outmoded class form. Um, all the national revolutions, you know, all the national liberation revolutions are revolutions that end the peasant relationship on their terms, as opposed to what happens in the settler colonies where the peasants are ended on capitalist terms, which are, mm-hmm. which is more genocidal. Right. Um, um, well, I mean, and if you're, and if you're a Trotskyist too, you would, shouldn't have any problem with that idea, right? Right. That's the, that's the whole point of the permanent revolution 
is to carry through because the bourgeoisie is too vacillating a week to carry through to the bourgeois revolution. The socialists have to do it. But this is why there's inner Trotskyist fights over whether um, in which national coalition of things does capitalism come into being? Is it England or is it the Italian city states? Now, I have actually committed the heresy of saying mercantilism begins in the Italian city states. But since mercantilism and banking both show up there, but they aren't tied to any one one set of investment schema, they don't become capitalism. Like, But I actually do take the point that they're making that most of the technologies that you see really come to the fore that you need for capitalism. And, and let's talk about our definition for capitalism, because Marx doesn't define it. He just describes right. it, right? Um, commodities produced for surplus value with free labor where reinvestment is possible so an MCM circuit can invest, profits can be made, put back into the system continuing to prompt out profits. The issue is, according to Marx, although his logic for it, I actually agree with some recent Marx scholars, is not entirely spelled out. And when he does spell it out, it's not entirely convincing. But it does align with material facts. So this is uh, what I mean with this. Real commodities have declining rates of profits over time. I will say that when I say real commodities, I mean things that are physically made. Right. The confusion comes in now is when we talk about profits, we also include rents. Um, yeah. I mean uh, – So. Yeah. I was going to say like if, you, if you're looking at the, the economy of Florence, mm-hmm. you see a nascent core of capitalist development there. It's clear. Like it, it fits all the parameters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't ever grow beyond that the, – the confines of the city really. I mean, um, if you look at the long DeRay, the Ray school, they will point out that you start to see the beginnings of capitalist development um, all the way back in the 12th century in, in, in certain monastic units where the monks were not able to command enough peasant labor through feudal lordship and thus entered in market relations, but that they stayed within a fucking monastery, basically. Like you, yeah. you have merchant monasteries, is what Br- Brunel. This is not a Marxist scholar, but this is this is actually one of the founders of world systems theory, though. Um, points this out that you can see you can see capital uh, start to develop in monastic institutions. Now, why I think this is interesting is uh, <laughs> this is what Catholic libertarians use to argue with Max Weber. <laughs> Like no no we we Catholics invented capitalism in like the 12th century and some monasteries right and then it went to Florence and then it went to England and you Protestants got it later, um, which is kind of ridiculous. The, the 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 issue becomes: Can capital become a dominant relation in society? Can that relationship actually spread out over uh, even an entire political polity and their trade routes? Because the other thing that's important for for England uh, being able to develop capital, it's got to have people to trade with. Now, who did the? Why would you have that infrastructure in the Italian city states? Well, they're still trading with the Islamic uh, yeah. ca- with the Islamic. Well, they're not. I don't know if we're in caliphates at this time, but um, oh, well, this with the Turkish. Yeah, yeah, with, with, and and priorly with the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, I mean like, that's and so Florence was entirely based. Uh, it was a an economy t- entirely based off trade and the production of wool, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that's where you get the, uh, if you look at the Chiampi revolt, which I'm sure you're familiar with, or I don't know if you are, Jason, but it was a mm-hmm. revolt of unorganized workers uh, who weren't necessarily considered true citizens because they didn't have guild representation because they were just proletarians. And uh, you clearly see capitalist dynamics and work at work here causing a proletarian revolt, which in, within which proletarians were seeking to be recognized as like members of society and to have guild representation, which is something you see playing out in the 19th century in the United States, uh, 19th and 20th century in the United States. I guess, so to me, this all leads to the question of at what point can we say a mode of production prevails? Because that's more important than I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because at least for my part, I I think I would contend that um, most of these schools are built around something fundamentally true on their own, on, you know, at least in the very specific terms that they want to talk about it. Like, Yes, you can find nascent aspects of capital going way, way, way back into the um, high Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I wouldn't say we have capitalism if we're defining it as a mode of production, which um, is so dominant that uh, everything that does that falls outside of it is still determined by it. Um, and a political superstructure has grown out of it to better facilitate its dominance. So like it can exist in a, in a you know, nascent form in a proto form, but at some point there is a whole era defined by that mode of production kind of seeping into every single aspect of social life and, uh, you know, remaking the world in its image. So by the industrial era, my, that's what Marx is talking about when he's writing capitals. Like here we have the mode of production as it prevails. But I, I think that for the question of transition, um, we we need to i don't know if we need to but i think it's probably worth trying to figure out like at what point does that happen and what do we say about the period in between these moments where this motor production prevailed and now that one prevails because we're talking about centuries of murkiness where it's like kind of like capitalism kind of like feudalism the whole mercantilist period is one of those periods what yeah. what is that period it's a transitionary period it's yeah. a transitionary period and i think yeah. i think yeah. we have to admit the transitionary periods are real yeah. Yes, I think we have to. Otherwise, otherwise you have to reject all historic periodization schemes, and then you're left with just continuity. And I agree yeah. with Wickham that that is a useless way to study history. Right. And so, so, so I think, and, and we have a like I mentioned with, with Banerjee. Banerjee says whatever the mode that seems to dominate is the mode you should call it. So if there are capitalist-like relations in 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 settler states in the Americas, which is when it hit like that Banerjee starts looking at these case areas that are traditionally ignored by Marxist historiography, because Marxist historiography is, I would almost say necessarily Eurocentric because of that. No one thinks that capitalism emerged and say the Islamicate world are the Sino Tibetan world are in the right. free Raj India or any of that. Right. And, but what gets unclear, and I think Wickham does touch on this, is can we call those other modes of production feudal in the way they are in Europe? In the Islamicate world, Wickham argues clearly no. Like there's, there you actually see there something like until the until well I mean something like actually an ex, a truer extension along with the Byzantine, the Byzantine, you know, the Byzantine Roman emperor empire of the Roman model of production. Um, 
you know, because you have real empires that are fairly coherent and they're not degenerating into mineralism. Until so, they do. Until they do later. Right. Right. Yeah. They do later than they do in the West. And uh, I think that Wickham alludes to this happened in Andalusia, uh, Andalus. Which, is why, the re- which is why the Reconquista could happen at all. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but ironically then, what does that form? Okay, so... I always point out there's, you know, your first modern nation states are what? In in Europe. And I think we can't talk about modern nation states outside of Europe because na- nations are kind of a European idea. Sorry, people. Hate to tell you that. Um, no, you don't. Uh, France, England, and Spain, right? Right. Well, what do they all become immediately? Do they stay nation states? Become empires, right? They become empires. And yeah. in the case of Spain, from moment one, and this is, this is actually... This is where uh, uh, Robert Brenner and Ellen Merkin Woods are actually helpful. Is explaining why Spain, which is a modern nation state from the Reconquista forward, uh, not a feudal, not a feudal state. It's important to to uh, point out that that is the context within which the Spanish Inquisition happens. It's an, exactly. under a modern nation state. Under a modern nation state, because the Inquisition is trying to get rid of. Not all secret, you know, ethnicities. Also, it's also, frankly, one of the three places blood we submerges from. The uh, Portugal is the other one, and then um, you have hints of it in Islamicate slave trades. If you read Ibn Khaldun, he starts talking about colors of people, yeah. um, and you see something close to modern racial discussions, which is. Interesting, also, because a lot of his uh, a lot of people will call Ibn Khaldun a heretic because in, in the Islamic world because he starts bringing up racial distinctions. It's yeah. an interesting point, um, but but it emerges kind of in those three places. Well, why does it emerge in Spain? Well, the Inquisition wants all that middle class money, so it's got to get rid of its. Well, naturally, the state wants all the middle class money, so it's got to find a way to do that. And looking for secret Jews and Muslims uh, is a great way to keep those people from coming out. But that leads to this idea that, like, Muslims and Jews are a separate, different kind of person, even after they converted. Right. Uh, then you have the Portuguese wanting to keep their 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 their, uh, their buying and selling of, of uh, Muslim slaves uh, in Europe, and they start getting Christians, and they got to justify it. So that's when blackness comes up. Um, and then you also had similar ideas coming on, coming out of North Africa from the Islamic world, also justifying enslaving people who may be Muslims. Yeah. So, um, that's what causes racial ideologies to come up. Well, wh- okay, fine. Interesting. Cool. Don't, I mean, morbid and sick and leashes dragons upon the modern world, but whatever. Why is, why doesn't Spain become capitalist? Well, what does it invest all of its, all of its, uh, infrastructure into? And I think this is important to really understand the difference. Why is not e- extractive technologies? Exactly, it's all in military technology. It's all extractive. Well, also they decimate their middle class. They don't have anything to reinvest into. Right. They get rid of all the they they decimate their middle class. They don't rely on merchants, and they put all of their investments into pure extraction, so they don't grow wealth. They only hoard it. Right, because they have a magical view of what makes gold worth anything. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like libertarians. Right. Also exactly. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, and so, and so, well, why do the English do it? Is it empire? No, it's, it is, 
Um, the enclosure of the commons. Um, okay, well that's shitty. But it's re- also they start investing in reinvestment technology. So instead of going purely into the military, you start seeing developments of factory work. And why do they why do they have a middle class worth investing into? Because the beginning with King Henry VIII, the middle class was empowered to break the remaining hold that the nobles had over the the king's uh bingo they wanted powers. to get rid of the the, the the feudal lords so the king could have an absolute monarchy and absolute monarchy is a early modern innovation right and so what ends up happening i think we mentioned i mentioned this before is you get the closest thing that exists to absolutism in in the entirety of western europe and it's it's through parliament parliament is an absolutist body <laughs> right which is actually interestingly pointed out to me about the United States uh, Congress, which is not totally an absolutist body, but the way it views legislation um, is that you voted for us, but we get to make the laws. You can't recall us or, you know, whatever, just because you don't like what we do. We actually have to do something that breaks our social contract, Uh, which is funny because while it's justified on locking in the grounds, it's actually a Hobbesian justification of government just with representative government for a limited period of time. Right. Um, As as far as Republican institutions go it's the least yeah such re- well, as but, but, as, yeah as far as representative versions of republicanism yeah yeah i mean as opposed to parliamentarism which although for those who think uh the u.s adopting a parliamentary system was all of its problems if you look at parliamentary systems they tend to develop the same problems as our congressional system over time anyway yeah but it, it would just make our problems more fun yeah we would have some cool like psychos with 14 people in their parties actually in congress that would yeah, yeah. be fun and, and yeah every now and then one of them would would get mad at the at the democrats and you'd have a coalition with the republicans of something weird um, c-span would be a lot cooler though because you would have things like fist fights on the, the floor of the, the house of representatives yeah i mean you like south korea in congress i'm sure you've seen some of oh that's so much fun <laughs> uh <laughs> And also, those parties, what's funny is, in South Korea, there's two ideological tendencies that have kind of sub-branches between them that come up, but the parties change, like, every four years. Yeah. Like, the conservative and liberal parties have, like, dissolved and reformed based on religion, t- religious tensions or uh, someone being accused of actually being a socialist instead of just kind of being a socialist, because actually being a socialist might make you sympathetic to the DPRK, and we can't have that. So, Yeah. So it's fun. It's fun stuff. Uh, it, it, <laughs> but I, I, I dare you to look at uh, at uh, either Britain or Canada and tell me that doesn't lead to like single party rule with mass disenfranchisement, because basically in Canada, the conservatives are an op, uh, an opposition party. And in and in the UK, the labor is an opposition party permanently. Yeah. Like, yeah. Pretty much like. And I think I think now so permanently that in the UK that you might as well have, and and in Canada actually you pretty much have a one party state, yeah. um, which isn't possible in the United States really. <laughs> so I point all this out to point out that like we have very facile notions of modes of production. What I like about Wickham's way of viewing this is it makes you really look at relations of production as well as modes mm-hmm. and the ideologies. Are, you know, the superstructure, all of that matters, but it matters in different ways at different times. And I think that's super important because I also think as much as I, I, I think, for example, when we talk about reform and revolution, 
I also I often think about the is revolutionary necessary article by Christopher Lash where he says, look, if you're if your model of revolution is in, is insurrections from the 19th century, I hate to tell you, nuclear weapons make that a non-starter. Like yeah. they just do. I mean, I've um, I've often I've thought the same thing about drone technology and right. mass mass surveillance technology. You just add whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so Kowski talks about this as early as like 1907, right? Yeah, He's just on like tank technology and mustard yeah. gas. This is like basically just, he says, with a couple of exceptions uh, in underdeveloped states like Russia, you know, that the, re- the social revolution won't play out. The way, I'm just, uh, paraphrasing his words. It won't play out in the same way that, the, uh, that it did in 1789 through, you know, basically 1848. It's like the it's it will look a lot more like the Protestant Reformation, which was sometimes violent and sometimes not, sometimes from below, sometimes from above. And the only way to understand the Reformation is this like long protracted period characterized by all sorts of different con- conflicting factors. But, he said in, in Russia, they might still have to storm the Bastille, which was to say the Winter Palace. And he was right. right. I think that Lash doesn't actually answer the question of revolution obsolete. I think he says no. But he does point out also that this continuous process of revolution often leads to this conception of revolutions that it's basically a marketing term. Hmm. Like, uh, like you have a revolution in production or a revolution in education or a revolution or a sexual revolution. You have a revolution in gaming. Right. Whenever the but, Wii came out, that was revolution. But it doesn't change any part of the MCM circuit. Now, that's not his point, but it, it, it's mine. Um, so what, what, how do you qualify what a revolutionary is? There are a lot of people. I mean, I think all these Trotskyists who entered the DSA, like, ah, well, the continuous revolution means reform and revolution as a famous, uh, tendency within the DSA will have caucus within the DSA will have called itself. And in some ways that's true. In some ways it's not either. Right. Because what is reform for? Reform is for the maintenance and continuing existence of the status quo. Berkey and conservatives are not against reform. Mm. They say so explicitly. They, their whole place is pass gets a vote. They don't even they don't even want a steady state world. The institutions should be trusted because they they've evolved for the conditions in which they exist. That is the Burkean argument. Now you know a lot of people will invoke Burke and they really mean Demestra, but which is a revolutionary conservative impulse, which you mm-hmm. know. Um, but, you know, this is your fullest study these days, Chris, I think. Um, Usually mid-20th century rightists who are taking inspiration from Demestra but don't actually realize it. Right. Yeah. Which I actually, I actually interestingly think was even true of, like, neoconservatives, Tea Parties, and Trumpists. That, like, there, there's, a, there's a revolutionary conservative, a reactionary, uh, a reactionary revolutionary our counter-revolutionary um, thread of their thought that is radically yeah. departed from Burkean conservatism because Burkeanism is a kind of reformism. I mean, it yeah. just is. Like the conservative revolution, the revolutionaries of Germany are taking like, are taking indirect influence from Demester, but they would never admit it because they're such nationalists. Right? Yeah. They would. Yeah. And they can't, it's got to have German. Can't be, not, yeah. Yeah. But, but yes, that's, you know, yeah. the, the, the counter enlightenment part of that has roots in Demestra. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the what is interesting about okay, so we talk about we're talking about this stuff. Well, let's go this back. This is ZF, to, straight ZF Sternhill here that you're that you're spewing, huh? 
Yeah, well. Yeah. I, I I am taking the studies on the liberal causes of fascism a lot more seriously, but I think Stern I think Sternhell should really make people uncomfortable because I've never seen anyone disprove what he says. Just yeah. say that he didn't incorporate the liberalism enough because I I do think like you've done shows on it. How confused? Um. Uh, how can how confused did social patriotism, national socialism, and all this make the socialist movement? Because it couldn't identify what it was dealing with on its typology and modes of production. Yeah, it's much easier for anyone who's inclined slightly towards you know a, a nationalist version of socialism to just go full reactionary and be a Nazi. Well, right? it happens to be most people, which is I think the real you know the great discomfort of most people on the left today is that uh it's never been ever in the entire history of our movement, a majority of us who aren't compelled by notions of patriotism first. Yeah. Which is mean, why, yeah. yeah. Even looking at, at everyone's favorite revolution, the Russian revolution, like, mm-hmm. yeah. How, what do you think motivated everybody that came in the, with the SRs, you know, are there Rodniks? Mm-hmm. Right. Or yeah. Or if you think about like the notions of the popular, or even front, the, like all or the major debates, some of the anarchists, century. I mean, like Kapotkin gets all weirdly nationalistic well, towards the end of it. Oh, so look, does, does Makhno? I was know? about to say, look at Makhno, the nationalist anarcho dictator of the Ukraine. Well, to well to connect it, uh, you know, uh, I know that we used directly. Let's connect it back. Um, yeah. Although I just want to say that we sometimes point this out at anarchists as if it cleans Marxist up. That doesn't at all. It doesn't no, at all. We turn into nationalists in the fucking <laughs> drop of a pin because yeah. it seems easy, and I think this we can tie back. All right. This is this is us being stuck in the ideological mode of an other period than the one we want. So let's look at mm-hmm. or the one we actually maybe even exist in. This let's is us look, being libs. Right. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. this is this is ideology being material force, which right. I think, you know, when people hear that, they think that's idealist. That's not materialist. No, no, no not at all. But it's deeply materialistic. If, actually, well, what you were saying earlier about the continuing influence of the Roman ideal thousand years after there's no more roman state is a really good example of that affects relations of production relations of production are part of the base not the superstructure Mm -hmm. yes there are superstructural elements of ideology i i I do think like if i'm going to talk about the rational kernel of altisarianism and i think altisarianism is in general bad um but their point about like state ideological apparatuses and uh and uh, state repressive apparatuses are actually kind of a good point um, because the state, whether we like it or not, plays a major role in relations of production, which is why I say there's no such thing as a non-capitalist nation state. But capitalism is not dependent on nation states, which blows people's minds because like you're saying, I'm saying, yes, the regulation of capital is handled by nation states, but it also puts any one nation at a disadvantage with dealing with capital, which is why nationalist revolutions have such a hard time pivoting the socialist, even when they sincerely want to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, management of localized tensions between classes and capitalist groups isn't that relevant to international capital, but it can, it actually can reduce social antagonism and reduce the likelihood of imperialist war. This is kind of a capitalist innovation after the horrors of the early 20th century. 
This is why they've incurred, like, why capitalists don't have problems with national revolutions. They don't. Because what is, let's say you have a little social, let's say you're like, you know, a little socialist southern uh, southern Sudan, and you need resources. What are they, they going to do? Eventually, you're going to ask to be fit into an imperial circuit. They don't even have to take you over. You will ask. Well, I mean, it's like, like Yugoslavia, same thing. Right. Right. When isolated from its trading partners to the east, it looks not aligned, and when that's not enough, it turns to the west. Which is which is uh, why I think this multipolarity thesis is interesting. Because okay, so you're going to have multiple poles of capital. Mm-hmm. Are they going to be distinct? No, no, not they if, can't not be. If they're going to be actual. Yeah, they can't be. And you have a similar. So let's go all the way back now. Let's retro it back into the past and tie this back in. All right to Wickham here. Um. None of these little empires, none of these kingdoms cannot could avoid some imperial relation, right? Why? But in imperialism, we mean straight up imperialism, not right. not um, not what we mean by Marxist imperialism now, which is actually, as uh, I think Jason, you guys at uh, over there at the measures taken put pretty clearly. No one can even tell you, like everyone knows that imperialism exists, but no one can even tell you its exact mechanism. Yeah, we just know it's bad, and that it's the primary contradiction. But beyond that, we nobody. Knows. <laughs> well, no, we do not. Uh, Trotsky is anti-imperialist. They're still anti-imperialist. They didn't go into the primary contradiction thesis. Come on. No, but I think that effectively that's how people treat the, the concept. Right. You know? Well, that's why everyone thinks somehow that nationalism can be progressive because they assume that modern capitalist imperialism works the same way as late feudal, early modern imperialism, and it doesn't. Right. It's like it's it's like a really bad term, honestly. We we're not really good at parsing out the distinctions, and we just it would have been better if we just never called it that. Right. We just well, call it something else. Well, actually, we did at first. You know, we called it finance capital. Right. But even that. Well, yeah. You know, Sorry, I mean, not that that was the point you were trying to make. <laughs> no, no, but but I'm actually going to defend Bukharin here because I think Bukharin's thesis about imperialism is that finance capital would tie it more and more to the state. And that you'd have a very state-regulated capital because of declining rates of profits is mm-hmm. something Lenin picks up on and uses in Lenin's imperialism. Uh, but, but frankly, Bukharin spells it out better in, in a way that makes the current conditions or the ability to switch to quote ultra imperialism the the uh, Hobson Kalski model right uh, and the model of MMTers today too like Michael Hudson. Uh, even though there's, they, they, they have different economic beliefs, but their, their description that, uh, that, that they all share is they're all basically under consumptionist mm-hmm. and that they all think also that capitalist powers, uh, will play along together because the risk of them not is too high. Uh, they're wrong about that in the period of, of intense competition in the early 20th century. But I even think right now on this whole multipolarity war, uh, thing, you know what? You know what? Uh, they're not doing either Russia or, or the or the or NATO is a direct fucking war. Right. Yeah. There's too much at stake. Well, there's too it, much at stake financially. There's too much at stake militarily. It can't I mean, dis- you can't disrupt me, all of those flows. Of we're capital. like in a hell land where both the where both Bakarin's imperialism and Kowski's imperialism is true. But <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the that's the contemporary synthesis, isn't it? So when studying the the neoliberal thinkers, it's it's like they read Bukhara and were like, okay, that's true. Let's, but it's a good thing. Right? Yeah, right. We can use we can use the government to impale markets. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Which which is what's funny about leftists who think 
that neoliberalism is 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 just going back to free market capitalism because that's what neoliberals say, but that's not what they believe. That's not yes, what. That's they why do we do. take them at their word? <laughs> right. Like uh, they're lying. Yeah. And what's funny is the true wackadoo libertarians knew it and called him out on it. Like yeah. von Mises called von Hayek a communist. Yeah, he did. Like, <laughs> like and so, so like these periodization and and these periodization problems have the same problem mm-hmm. as some of these uh, trying to find the exact point of the distinction between these uh, modes of production. And I'll talk about it. Like let's talk about this right now, and we'll make the analogy. And in, in the end of the Carolingian Empire. Um, we start seeing. Do, do the, does the, the imperial ideology go away? No, no. I Not mean, the whole the Home and Rolling Empire, uh, the imperial the France, yeah. The, yeah, imperial. You know, the consolidation of the British Isles. It's all based on trying to recreate the Carolingian model because right, everyone which, everyone harkens back to Charlemagne as being like father the Holy of Roman yeah. Emperor, the father right. of Europe, right? I mean, basically, I, I know we don't think about it because Catholic. The Catholic, West, the Catholic and Protestant world don't like to be reminded that they might rhyme with the Orthodox world, but basically everybody's trying to be Third Rome. Yeah, and this leads to a very incoherent. Like, if we actually look at the period of highly developed, independent, post-Calvinian uh, feudalism, how long does it fucking last? Well, uh. A hundred years? Liberally, I would say, yeah. I mean, like the, the period that, that is considered the high Middle Ages, right? Right. So okay. that's like what, from the the 10th to the 12th century? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, like. like Everything before the oh, Renaissance. The 11th Extremely. to the 13th century. Right. Yeah. If you're, yeah. If you're super generous, it's 1080 to 1250. Right. And that's being super that generous. Long. And and when most people think about the medieval world and the feudal world, they're actually thinking about like the early Renaissance and uh, the calamitous mm-hmm. 14th century. They're mm-hmm. not thinking about the any period that would actually be feudal by this terminology. But also, if we ended at at, at 1250 and we we began capitalism with the English Civil War, holy fuck! Do you just have a 300 year gap with no mode of production? Yeah, dude. Everyone's like, just vibing. <laughs> so the dialectic was on pause. Like, <laughs> Vibes-based mode of production. I, 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 I guess, like, you, has anyone ever argued that, like, the religious wars of the 14th century, the long 14th century, uh, are really of their own mode of production? No. So Not yet. So what is Some, it? Somebody oh, might. I, now that I've said this, someone's going to fucking do yeah. it. Uh <laughs> It's a transitionary period. The long transitionary period. A long, a long period. transitionary period. In fact, you could literally see the way I view the the feudal period is it's the whole thing to me is a couple of transitionary periods. Like there's not there's no I can't find a point of actual continuity that's complete. Yeah. And I can't find a point of singular rupture either. Yeah. Particularly it, if you look at world systems, not just in Europe. Yeah, I was about to say, it, 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 even within Europe, it varies ge- geographically. Right. You know? I mean, you don't get rid of feudal relations in Sicily until the 20th fucking century. Yeah. You don't get rid of feudal relationships in England until the 20th fucking century either. <laughs> right. Yeah, true. Yeah, if you, if you study, like, the the move from the, like, into the Bronze Age and then from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age – You've got a lot of like social stability, you know, a lot of like rise and fall, like particular polities, and you have the Bronze Age collapse, or whatever. 
but you have a lot of continuity that doesn't exist in this next period that we're like, you know, after antiquity and before modernity, you have this period that just looks like constant, constant change. And yet it's funny because it's thought of as being per- permanent. I mean, I'm like a iron continuity. It's, it's thought of as being like a stagnant period when it's probably the most dynamic period yeah, in terms of the is- way the social dynamics are constantly shifting. This is where non-Marxist semiotic thinker and general bad analyzer of fascism, Umberto Eco, comes in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Good he actually, writer of novels, however. Yeah, oh, he's – Umberto Eco is one of the biggest influences on my thought, believe it or not. But yeah. Just not on fascism. He's just no. wrong about it. Um, one of the things I will say is he talks about how our current period of the 20th century – to him rhymes more with the late middle ages than it even does with the Renaissance because he thinks we're in a period of constant transition. And, you know, he, he, he identifies this with like unstable paradigms, this and the other, uh, political instability. And he was writing this when there was still a Soviet union. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, none of the whole grand end of history thesis are coming into this, but he's like, basically it's a great experimentation and there's no singular way of life dominating. Now he doesn't think like a Marxist and isn't thinking of modes, but if you translate into this whole thing was a fight over not just which mode was going to win state capitalism or regular old capitalism, but also capitalism itself. And the reason why we have periodizations has figured out ways to maintain the MCM circuit, but change almost every other relation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whether how, what the state is invested for, whether it's invested in regulation or market creation has changed this, you know, but, you know, as I tell people, when I talk about neoliberalism, I'm like, okay, has the state gotten any smaller in the neoliberal period? No, it has, no, but not. It has gotten bigger. Yeah. It's actually got, yeah. It's gotten bigger in the neoliberal period, not yeah. smaller. It just doesn't do anything for most people. It's now an insurance. It's now a war machine with an insurance plan. Like, right. <laughs> Like uh, and and like municipal and, and, governments do shit. And there's a still. giant. There's also a giant legal bureaucracy designed. Right. <clears throat> I mean, like designed to capture rents. Yeah, that's right. It's it, it's a system that's just is personal. It's it's just two boots. One for kicking foreign countries, and the other one for stomping on domestic uh, yeah. problems. Yeah, um, they get too uppity about there. But you know what? It hasn't done restored long term profitability. Right. Nope. It did restore profitability, but not for very long. Like, and I know, I know, profitability thesis is super controversial. Uh, I think whether or not Marx's argument for it is sound, I think empirical, empirical data just backs it up. GDPs decline over time. That's the best. It's not the same thing as what Marxists mean by proxy, profits. It isn't. Don't want people to think it is, but it's the closest measure we have. It's it, it's one of the indices that we can use to roughly approximate. Right. Because Just like how in classical economics, they teach you that there is an ironclad law of diminishing returns, which is also not the same thing as a declining, declining rate of profit. But there's something implicit in this recognition that like eventually you have to invent new ways to make profits because profits do decline on their right. own. Otherwise, like stuff like capitalist planned obsolescence would not have ever happened. Well, that's called corporate greed. <laughs> so all you have to do is just make that illegal. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and watch what happens to your economy if you do. Well, yeah. Well, I'm against the economy. Yeah, I'm yeah. against the economy too. Yeah. Um, um, 
you know what else? You know another state that operates like this, like the neoliberal state, it's the Carolingian state. Mm. That's yeah. what it was for, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then uh, whenever it ceased to be good at doing that, the nobility just gave up on it. Yeah, and right. it ceased to exist. So, so in that way, the neo-feudalist thesis of people like Bezos and Musk is, uh, you know, having more power than states. And operating more like feudal lords with the little, you know, their own fiefs that they control. It's, it's, it's obviously, you know, it's clunky, but it, it, it resonates because it's, it, resonates. it is about something real. It, yeah. And I, I've talked to, uh, uh, Stefan Hamill about this a little bit. And, and I've said, you know, my only issue with it, I almost am convinced about the, the techno neo feudalism might be a threat, except that it can't exist on its own. This is what I tell people like, it is not an analogous state to classical feudalism because who the fuck is growing your food, motherfucker? Robots? No. Well, I think that's but, the hope. Like, like but th- it's the hope until you do it and you realize that you can't make profits off of things. that Profit margins accelerately decline in things that are highly automated, which is totally consistent with classical Marxist tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why like, it's, the, it's, it's labor power is the critical... The critical factor in all economic analysis. And the reason why isn't because labor power is special. It's not somehow magically different from robot power. Labor power is variable. You can get people to work for more or less money. Once you get once you get the cost of a machine to cost, your prices will drive down to cost. And there's nothing to squeeze out of that machine except for the labor of the people who service it. Until you make AI so... Uh efficient that it wants time off and then it organizes to defend its own interests and then it becomes I was, cool say, as well. I was about to say well then you just have robo proletariat like right. like then you you just recreated capitalism but without people <laughs> right we, well with, with new people with ai people 1000 uh, years from now the earth will be completely covered in a casing of steel and electronics and there will be robo proletarians fighting against robo capitalists well yeah, no there'll be human capitalists and it'll be like dubai all the robots will be, you know, laborers, and all the humans will be the ruling class. No, the the humans that exist will be like the the JD Bernal version of future humans, but only the the capitalists. They'll just be like uh, cylindrical casings that float around in space and are guided by their brains. <laughs> so, you know, all these things aside, you you know, it was funny. We're joking like this, but I do think people think this way. Yes, and as I've been doing. As I've been talking about physical material analysis of technology, I am no longer worried about that future. That is yeah. impossible. No, I don't think like, it's real. I don't think it's real. I think nah. it's a terrifying ideal that will it will it will bring about horrors all over the face of the earth. Well, I mean, it basically but it won't actually succeed. It won't actually succeed because one, we don't know how human cognition actually works well enough to mimic it. Two, we don't know if machine machine binary thinking can mimic human cognition. And three, uh, you have material fucking limits of energy. Yeah, well, there's that's the main thing, right? Philosophically, we might say that spirit doesn't animate anything but human beings. Um, but materially yeah. speaking, scientifically, we can say that uh, we'll run out of energy, uh, the sources of energy, well before we ever get anywhere close uh, to a I robot that doesn't just get stuck when it tries to deliver your food. My argument <laughs> against about the difference between artificial and human intelligence has nothing to do with spirit. It has everything to do with the fact that... Uh, organic the organic being doesn't work on binary systems so um that's a good enough reason right like <laughs> i like I've, I've thought a lot about it i'm like yeah we like all the assumptions like 
Boolean logic was supposed to explain how people work, but it actually just makes a good search engine. It doesn't even really make a good search good engine. Good search engine. <laughs> no. No, actually, but it makes, it makes a, a search engine. It that, makes the, a search engine that is optimized to giving you what you already think you know. The pinnacle of yeah, search engines was Ask Jeeves. It's all it's been downhill since there. Yeah. Um, I miss Yahoo because <laughs> the internet was like they actually used to try to in, index the internet, but I guess it was small enough that you could back then. I just yeah. remember like going on. You could hit a topic on Yahoo and just scroll into subcategories. Back in the day, but you miss when the internet was like Reddit. Yes, I do. Actually, yeah. the entire internet was. That's, we should have we should have stopped technological innovation in like 1997. In my in my opinion, <laughs> I think we should have stopped technological innovation in like 1815. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> you're gonna either become uh, James Howard Counselor or, or uh, John Michael Greer if you keep on going down that route. Um, <laughs> or or maybe maybe you'll do what Sarazen did with Adorno and use the Frankfurt School to argue against against. Any reification, uh, and just argue that we should remove the frontal lobe from all human beings and get rid of all technology. So, uh, the, I mean, the difference would be the last thing we do with technology. The, <laughs> the difference between <laughs> between that idea, between Jason's personal idea and his political stance, are uh, pretty wide. Pretty, pretty wide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I'm materialist enough to recognize that I have to operate in the world that I actually live in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also don't want cholera. So, um, so, um, Which you, means, well, well, that means you want to check the spread of industrial progress as well, because cholera is still a problem everywhere where there's still industrialization. Yeah, I do. I, I don't like industrial progress. My friend. Oh, it's bad. Yeah, I know. I know. That's, more, that's more for people listening who are like, oh, yes, I do worship science because diseases are bad. And it's like, yeah, good thing we got rid of diseases. Yeah, yeah no kidding, right? right? By the way, I stayed inside for the last two years. How about you? <laughs> Look at what bone... I, I hate to give primitivist any any boost at all, but look at what agriculture did to bone density and disease. Sorry. That's Dude, objective. I mean, I drove, like, through, I drove through West Texas and we passed a slaughterhouse and uh, the smell of passing that slaughterhouse made turned me into a primitivist for the duration of the drive. He had a he had a Kaczynski moment. <laughs> yeah, I did. Serious Kaczynski moment. Yeah, that, um, that that'll happen anytime you go near a slaughterhouse or a chicken farm. Yeah, yeah. You know what will keep you from uh, dwelling too much on your Kaczynski moments, though? Thinking about feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because uh, yeah, <laughs> I I just think about you know, do I want tribal warlords as my primary mode of organization or not? And like... thus we get we return to <laughs> Occidental. Despotism as a motivation. Just to bring it back to our last set of conclusions. Yeah. Actually, on the subject of tribes and tribal warlordism, I think uh, you know this is a tangential point. Um, but but Derek, you were talking earlier about uh, about nations being fictions, and I think yeah, sure, that's true. But I also think uh, um, you know when we talk about ideology being material force, like what does it really mean to, for it to be fictional if it is actualized in the world, even if it only in a very uncomfortable way. Well, I said I said continuity of na- of nations being fictions. Oh yeah, that's that is an important distinction. Well, I I think that Bauer is really you know I, I wish somebody else would take up the Bauer thesis and like really really investigate it. The link between tribal affiliation and nation, whereas kingdoms and states are kind of like a uh, a step away, right? That modern nationalist ideology. Modern is, anthropology is nothing but this, though. 
Like, this yeah. is what, like symbolic kinship actually is the answer to this question. So right. like, um, the, the, what, what nations trip up on is they can invoke a symbolic kinship chain that's totally artificial, but they're not the only thing that can do it. And uh, religion actually does it better, frankly. That's why it endures. Yeah, it is actually, and that's why. And and what people realize is is uh, national boundary borders are become a problem. Uh, tribal and kinship identities are more porous than national identities, which I think is something that blows people's minds when they realize. But like, mm-hmm. like if you don't if you don't understand symbolic kinship, well. How do you? How does anyone join any other family? Duh. Yeah. Like, yeah. like that's also how you join. Like tribes and all this work on the same function because everybody, all us monkeys, realize if we inbred, we die out, and that and that we should offer relatively similar protections to those who come into our social groups. Um, that's based off tribal bands. Tribal bands are like taking people in and out all the time. Like, particularly in immediate return hunter-gatherer situations, which is actually, I know that's what the primitives actually want, um, but the development of of immediate return hunter-gatherer is dependent on soil conditions that I don't think actually exist anymore. Well, then it's dependent upon small populations, too. Super small populations, which which don't exist. Which is why, which is why, in in high scarcity environments, you get warlordism. You know, it's just kind of what it is. Yeah. Yep. Um, planet change, people. Sorry, and even before industrialization. So, we should bring this all. Try. We try to put a bow on this. Uh, Revolutions are processes. Have a nice day. There we go. Right. I, mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly right. Revolution is not an event. You don't unleash revolution. It's not like you build it up and you say, "Here it goes." Um, it's a. It's a process. You can act consciously in it or unconsciously in it, but you're a part of it either way. Yeah, I, I know the ultras, and I, I don't normally use ultra as an insult because everybody, like, I'm kind of an ultra. I'm I was going to say because people insult you as an ultra. <laughs> yeah. I'm a maximalist. But uh, I will say this. People who think that, like, the transitionary theories implied by the critique of the Goethe program aren't important to Marxism make Marxism insane. Yeah. Because the idea that we're going to overnight in the entire world take over abolish nation states, abolish all classes but the working class, and probably even abolish them too, actually, because that's the ultimate goal. And one single movement, nothing, nothing in the history of ever has worked that way. Right. I mean, just to take one example from this discussion we just had, although, I mean, nothing has ever worked that way. Mm, That's a good ending. But (laughs) just to dwell on the thought, again, the persistence of the Roman ideology a thousand years after the fall of Rome is a really good example of how you don't change anything overnight. Technically, two thousand. Really, if you're, it's still it's still roughly two thousand, right? Right. Well, sixteen hundred years after the fall of Rome. Well, about two thousand years after the fall of the Republic, which is still an yeah. idea that animates uh, certain sectors of you know France, the United States. Yeah, me. Yeah, the Roman Republic. <laughs> no, just the idea of the Republic as a concept. Yeah. Yeah, you uh, you quasi neo cal uh, Marxist Republicans. Um, uh, there, there's there is an element of that of that neo Kautskyist of the Kautskyian revival, which is largely stupid, but I think that's a good one. Is the revival of the republicanism? Yeah, the social republicanism. I, I like the idea of the Republic of Nations um, because it's a way to conceptualize internationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because otherwise you're stuck with a, a, a bifurcation between either nationalism or 
liberal globalization. And in, and in, and in that duality, nationalism, as we have said a bunch of times, kind of looks very appealing. Cause how yeah, can it but not? I, it looks very appealing until you have it and your society starts to fall apart. Well, sure. Right. And then once, and then once you have globalization destroying your society, you go back to it because right. neither one of these are an answer to our problem. Which is why the 20th century is this weird, like almost metabolic rift that gets closer mm-hmm. and closer to killing off the human species between globalism, whatever the fuck that is. Um, I, capitalism, capitalism, internationalism, capitalist internationalism and, mm-hmm. and nationalism because, okay. And this is even true with the left, because a lot of the left, whether it realizes it or not, are methodological nationalists. I finally had someone admit it to me today on Twitter when they're like, I believe that nations are the primary movers of history. And I'm like, I believe that nation, I believe that nation states have only existed since the Treaty of Westphalia. Like, um, so no, most of human history has nothing to do with nations at all. I think that um, that person being super generous to them, I mean, they're still wrong, but they must have meant nations as a catch-all term for tribes and all the ways in which people have, like, bonded together. Ethnicities? Yeah. Ethnicities? Like, blood? Yeah. Relations? Yeah. Uh, races? Races are the primary movers of history? Is that what they meant? <laughs> like, you can take this in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that's I, what they meant, whether they knew it or not. You know, a lot of people have argued this in the past <laughs> yeah like multiple times you start yeah. off with proletarian nations and you get proletarian bloodlines um germany um the, the not, only bloodline i'm interested in is the is the the merovingian bloodline you know oh yes jesus <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which uh have you you being an, a fan of echo have you read Foucault's pendulum yeah um, many many times okay cool it's like, like my second favorite book yeah yeah well it was my second favorite book and now it's my favorite book because i just read it again recently it was just like hmm okay I'm gonna it is creepier up. now than when i first read it in the 90s as a teenager and then i, I taught it in 2007 to a freshman um during the dan brown period because i'm like everyone's like into the da vinci code and i'm like let me give you something that's Kind of that, but not dumb. It's it's She's like, like oh, I, see you like to, <laughs> I see you like to play checkers. Have you ever heard of chess? Chess. <laughs> like, so um, I I've suggested Foucault's Pendulum to everyone who ever asked for a novel recommendation, and I've never had anyone actually finish it when I suggested <laughs> well, it. To I, I have read it. I've taught. And it. so you you are one of like three people that I know that have like that have actually read the book, and I think for most people it's just too fucking nerdy for them. You know, like long ass digressions about the history of Western esotericism and like it just people don't care about that stuff. And they Weird shit. Yeah. Ebola proxies in Brazil. Yeah. Like I was not when I when I read it as an adult my second time through, I had not realized that like that a lot of the people being referred to are real things and real mm-hmm. and, and real people. And then and then when I also got into it even more and I was like, oh, wait, the publishing industry really does work this way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, I guess we're done. Did we did done. we ever find a stopping point? Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and 
other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.